0: Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Season 2 of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist Exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy.
1: Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did.
0: This year you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Hey listeners, we have an ask of you. Between reading and rereading resources, reaching out to content experts, and reviewing our material, this podcast takes time, effort, and resources to share it with you every week.
1: We are humbled and grateful for the listener and affiliate interest over the past several months, and the scores of messages received letting us know that this podcast has incrementally improved their test prep has been inspiring. Special thanks to the community for engaging and interacting with the show. We want to keep the podcast
0: focused on content that informs, prepares, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support.
1: We've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. If pushing pediatrics is a part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit the link in any of our episode guides and support us any way you can today. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at PushingPediatrics or send us an email at PushingPediatrics at gmail.com.
0: Hey guys, continuing on with our special content where we're interviewing pediatric physical therapists across all of the various settings. Some faces you may recognize and others may be new to you. Our goal with these episodes is to bring you all information that's pertinent to your studying for the PCS exam such as content you should be aware of. This week, we're introducing you to Marissa Slate, the other face behind the Instagram Pediatric Physical Therapy. We talked to her partner in crime, also Marissa, last week about school-based services. And this week, we will get into early intervention services. If you don't already follow them, definitely check them out. Like we said last week, we loved using their pediatric and questions and answers for additional practice for the PCS exam. And with those, they provided some great resources. We love their content on Instagram, and we're so excited to have the other Marissa this week. Welcome to Pushing Pediatrics.
1: Happy to be here. We're really excited to have you this week, Marissa. Why don't you first tell us a little about yourself? So I'm Marissa,
2: a former environmental scientist who decided the year she turned 30 to quit her job and go to PT school, after getting in, of course. I went into residency as a new grad and have been in practice for nearly seven years. I own an early intervention business serving patients in a large underserved county in South Carolina. I also work PRN for our local pediatric hospital because I love the fast pace of the acute care environment. I teach for two different residencies, and I'm passionate about educating future PEDs and advocating for access to care for all my patients and their families. I sit on the board of directors for the APTA South Carolina, and I serve as an SPAL, so that's the state pediatric advocacy liaisons for the APPT. I'm also a mom to two toddlers. My son, Frankie, just turned four at the beginning of the month and my daughter, Berkeley, is two and a half.
0: Wow, what a journey you've been on. Our goal in our next few weeks is to give our listeners some detailed information on the separate practice areas of PT to help make sure they've kind of covered all of their bases in their PCS prep. We reached out to you because we knew you worked in early intervention but we're also excited for your perspective as someone who also works on the residency side of things. So when did you receive your PCS? I began studying in
2: 2017 because I had graduated from residency early that summer. I tested in March, 2018 and passed.
1: Tell us your background in the early intervention setting.
2: Through residency, I was lucky because I gained experience in many different practice settings that included acute care, school-based and the outpatient settings. Early intervention was not one that I was familiar with, but I was interested in. After graduating residency and moving back to Charleston, South Carolina, I took a job that was primarily outpatient, but there were some opportunities to have community-based patients. Some of these were birth to three kiddos in their homes or in daycare. I discovered my passion for working so closely with the families, so in 2020, I started my own company. It's still just me, but I'm actively trying to hire another therapist since the county I live and work in is so underserved. In 2020, I was offered the opportunity to help develop a pediatric physical therapy residency program here in Charleston, along with some other amazing faculty members and mentors. We're in our third year now, and I teach all the early intervention content, plus I get to mentor our residents one-on-one in the early intervention setting.
0: Wow. I can't think of anyone better to help our listeners understand the vital components of the early intervention setting. Let's first discuss the important rules and regulations that our listeners and for those taking the PCS exam need to be aware of in the early intervention setting.
2: Probably one of the most important things is just to have a general understanding of the IDEA, Part C, and Part B. I think it would be helpful to have some idea about the regulations, but I don't think it's worthwhile to spend hours memorizing anything. I do have a lecture I give on this topic to our residents, and this is how I normally explain it. It's important to remember that some of this is state-specific, so for the exam, make sure you know the federal rules. In general, anyone can refer a child, a pediatrician, a parent, a caregiver for services through whoever the state early intervention payer is through Medicaid. For an example, in South Carolina, the Medicaid payer for the zero to three services is BabyNet, and the referral source can log into BabyNet's website, Click on the referral button and just enter any general information. Usually after that, a referral coordinator will contact the family to set up the evaluation. Oftentimes it's a developmental screening, similar to either the Bailey or the Daisy 2. If the child qualifies, this is where it gets very hairy from state to state. In some states like South Carolina, children can receive all services. This means they are assigned an early interventionist first and that early interventionist wears two different hats. One is to provide early education info and training to the family. And their second duty is to find the therapist for each discipline that the child needs, be it OT, PT, speech, or all three. In other states, like Florida, for instance, children are assigned an early interventionist, and then they only qualify for a primary service based on the child's scores and the parent preference. Other disciplines will then inform the primary therapist how to carry over therapeutic tasks during their session. So how does this look? If a family wants physical therapy primarily to focus on teaching a child to walk, then the physical therapist will get tips from the occupational therapist on how to do various types of grasp or sensory integration, just based on whatever the goals are. And they may get some coaching from the speech therapist on promoting sounds or babbles. If a speech therapist is the primary service, the PT may work on coaching the speech therapist for positioning during play or eating. As for a transition meeting, when a child gets closer to age three, and essentially what's gonna happen is they're gonna transition from early intervention to school-based services, This will primarily be the responsibility of the early interventionist. I'm on a team to revamp the fact sheet that deals with communicating as an early intervention therapist to a new school-based therapist so that transition is smoother. However, I do believe that all disciplines should be part of the transition meetings. It's just unfortunate that right now we're not really there yet. Some states or counties are definitely better at this than than we are here in South Carolina. (laughs)
1: That's great information. The APTA also has a fact sheet, the Early Intervention Physical Therapy IDEA Part C that covers the broad basics that you just described. Seems like one to make sure that you have memorized. We really like the flowchart in this fact sheet that outlines the IFSP process like you have discussed.
0: What does a typical history and system review look like in the EI setting? This can vary pretty widely. Some of my more medically complex patients come
2: with a lot of information from the hospital that was attached to their referral. And parents of these children are often super knowledgeable about their child's diagnosis and hospital stay and pretty much everything that has happened since birth. Certain pediatricians will send along information with their referral for a more common developmental diagnosis like developmental delay. But oftentimes it's just a written script on a piece of paper that's faxed. I rely pretty heavily on the parent report but I will contact the providers if needed.
1: What are some red flags that you may see in the EI setting that cue you to refer out or contact the PCP?
2: I tend to use a lot of the same, I call them, quote unquote, gut feelings that many therapists use when evaluating a new patient. This can be described as something that just doesn't seem right or the features just don't fit with the diagnosis that was on the paper. I do a pretty good neuro screen as well. So if I have concerns, I'll refer back to the provider who sent in the referral for a separate referral to neurology. I have also referred several of my patients to either developmental pediatrics or genetics for additional screening after I discuss all my concerns with the parents or caregivers.
1: That makes a lot of sense. This is where we can remind our listeners that a good history is needed and have a good screening plan so you can refer if needed. When you are working through your PCS exam questions, make sure to be paying attention to all aspects of the case.
0: So what does a typical examination or evaluation look like in the EI setting? And what outcome measures do you use frequently or see frequently? This can also vary pretty widely. It depends on several external factors, such as how
2: tolerant a child is for handling, their age. And one of the biggest things that I see is if there are other children in the home. So if the parent is kind of splitting their time between multiple children during the evaluation I usually go in with a list in my head of tests and measures that I'd like to try and get through and do as much as I can. As long as I feel like I have a clear clinical picture from the eval, I'm always able to capture additional clinical data during the follow-up visits. Most commonly, I'm using the PDMS2 or the Peabody, but for some of my older patients, I have used several measures that require no equipment, such as the two or the six-minute walk test, variations of the tug, et cetera.
1: What interventions do you use most frequently? I use a combination of hands-on facilitation techniques,
2: and parent coaching techniques. I think the most important intervention I use is education for the parents and caregivers so that they feel confident to carry over the techniques during their normal routines.
0: Yes, I think we've covered this a lot, but it's always worth saying again, early intervention is really more of a coaching education type model and must be provided in natural environments. There is a fact sheet, Weaving Relationship-Based Practices into Intervention, a guide for pediatric physical therapists that really discusses in depth the importance of the relationship between the therapist and the family and the caregiver. From that fact sheet, they say the interpersonal interactions between infant and caregiver, caregiver and therapist, and infant and therapist define the relationship-based approach to intervention The interpersonal behavior of each member contribute to the moment-to-moment interactions and context for learning. We will link these fact sheets in the episode guide, so make sure to check them out.
1: Using that model that Sheila just touched on, what kind of education do you provide? Who do you provide the education to? How do you provide it? I think that was
2: a great segue. This is definitely parent-caregiver specific. I have provided written handouts, videos, or suggestions for certain apps with age-appropriate activities and how to promote, usually with a milestone tracker that's attached. Most often, I allow the caregivers time to practice hands-on while I'm present so they can feel it for themselves and can ask any questions while I'm still in session. As I mentioned earlier, I also mentor a resident directly in the EI setting. This allows a unique opportunity for real-time adjustments in handling, education on milestones, and even development
0: of effective communication strategies. So one of our kind of favorite topics that I think we talk about a lot is that dosage piece of things. So how do you determine dosage and frequency of treatment sessions and interventions? This can be a very tough question for my setting. Obviously, we use clinical judgment
2: to determine an appropriate frequency, however, A lot of my patients tend to be a bit more medically complex, so I have to be reasonable. Between all of their specialist appointments, low immune systems, and several other therapy appointments weekly, it's not uncommon that I have to change my frequency to one time a week to meet the family where they are.
1: Unfortunately, there isn't a document for EI that helps determine dosage in the EI setting. There is a great document for the school-based services, but it isn't as clear-cut in this setting. This is where we have to use good clinical reasoning, and on the test, you need to make sure you pick the best answer. There is only one right answer, and you need to use that clinical reasoning to figure out what's the best answer, even if it seems like there's two answers that both could kind of be right. It's always about choosing the best answer.
0: When do you know when discharge is appropriate? There are a few different reasons for discharge.
2: I feel like one of the main reasons is due to non-compliance. so either the family is canceling too frequently or clearly not doing any of the home exercise program outside of the scheduled appointments and the child is not making any progress or when their goals have been met. I'm actually getting ready to discharge a patient who, in theory, could continue to benefit from therapy services because he does have a Down syndrome diagnosis. That being said, he is in school now with peers. He's performing age-appropriate skills for his age as compared to the Down syndrome population, and he has also been in therapy for his entire life. The family and I have discussed that this is an appropriate time to discharge and we can reassess in six months to a year based upon any of their new concerns at that time.
1: Love this episodic model of service delivery. This is definitely the more evidence-backed approach. What are some clinical pearls from your practice that you think people should know to be an expert in the EI setting?
2: So I have two. The first one is get comfortable being uncomfortable. There are a lot of rare and unfamiliar diagnoses and you're by yourself with the family. You need to use your resources, find a mentor that you trust to bounce questions off of, and research similar diagnoses for starting reference point. I'll give you an example of this. If you have a child with a hypotonia diagnosis and that's all you have, you can use the Down syndrome references to just give you at least a point to jump off from. The second pearl is to give the family therapeutic activities that they have time to practice and fit into their normal routines. My biggest mistake that I made as an outpatient therapist before becoming an EI therapist was assigning three to five activities each week and actually believing that any family with more than one child had time to do any of that.
0: Yes, I feel like having kids of my own has also definitely made me a more realistic pediatric therapist and maybe a little bit more inventive as well. I really focus all of my home activities into almost interval style approaches, giving families ways to implement a lot of practice in just little bursts throughout the day. For example, if I have a kid that's working on jumping or hopping, I'll tell them every time they go up the first step, see if they can jump up the first step, see if they can hop up the first step, do something, but that they do it throughout their day. They just kind of incorporate. It into something they're already doing and it doesn't feel like something you're just adding on to their day.
1: Is there anything that you learned from studying for the PCS that impacted how you approach your setting?
2: Studying impacted my clinical pearl number one that I mentioned above. I had to get really comfortable with all that I didn't know and I had to learn where to look up information effectively and efficiently. Being honest with myself that there is no way possible to ever know everything about pediatric physical therapy, but really just striving to focus on the patients that I have in front of me and how I could best serve them and their family unit.
0: I was actually thinking about this before, and I was going to say it, that kind of concept with like a really unfamiliar diagnosis, I think was really great and something our listeners can use in the PCS exam. I know kind of in our last month of studying, I started to go through some of the genetic conditions, studying for all of the different genetic diagnoses felt very overwhelming and then I kind of realized, and even as I've been on other committees with other people who've known and done more with the PCS even longer than we've been doing stuff with it, is that you probably don't need to know anything specific about the diagnoses. So they might throw some sort of question at you with a genetic diagnosis that you'll first look at and be Oh my gosh! I've never heard of this. I can't answer this question. I don't know it. But that the the diagnoses might not matter at all. You just sure. need to read. They're going to give you the information that you need to know within your clinical vignette. And it's just it's probably going to be like you said. You might need to think about something similar or something different or a treatment intervention, but. I urge people to just take a breath and that there's a good chance within that they're going to give you the information that you need to know within the rest of the question. It's not that they're going to say, what is this rare diagnosis or what other thing would you see with this? That was something that I learned in residency because we had to do
2: case presentations. And of course, when you're trying to choose your trials for your case presentation, you want something that's interesting. So all of us tend to just, especially because everyone's type A and crazy competitive, you're trying to pick literally the most difficult case on your caseload. And oftentimes it's some super rare something and there's no research on it at all. And so I remember our our coordinator used to tell us all the time, just look to something either in the adult literature that's similar because sometimes, you know, if it's a kid with CP, there's a ton of research, but if it's something else, And it just mimics uh, an adult diagnosis. We can use that. Like for instance, I had a resident recently that she had a child with anophthalmus. So it's like either the child was missing an eye or the the eye was not functional, something like that. And the child was ultimately blind. And so she was trying to do all these auditory things. And she was like, but I don't have any research to support it. And I was like, look in the adult literature for people that were born blind, I guarantee you. And there was tons. It was just tons. So sometimes you have to do that. And the other time, like I said, you know, you have a child that is low tone and you don't know why. And that's all you have. And so you're like, well, I'm going to go to the number one low tone diagnosis that there's tons of research on, even if it's 10 to 15 years old, but it's effective. And then at least you have somewhere to start is really. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And also to remember too that, like, if if you get a weird random genetic diagnosis on the test, one vignette may not necessarily be the make or break either. If it is a weird, like, asking you a bunch of detailed questions about it, you know, it maybe could be a test question where it's they're testing it for future years. It could just be a one off question. So making sure that you know like the big picture stuff and not just honing in on those small little rare diagnoses that you may not necessarily get a question on it's going to be worth your time more to study the bigger picture things
0: 100 percent. right so i think this is all a really great message especially since our listeners are kind of approaching their last month of studying you're not going to know it all You are going to have test questions you do not know. There is no point now in doing a mad crash to learn all the information that's left. Make sure you are reviewing your own challenging areas, becoming a bit more comfortable with your uncomfortable areas, and probably quit studying the stuff you feel like you know well.
1: We just had our study tip on this a couple of weeks ago, so refer back to that just as a reminder. Marissa, do you have any last-minute study tips or thoughts for our listeners?
2: make a schedule that works for you. I made a very detailed schedule for my personality and included minimal review time during the week. So I maybe had one to two hours an evening that I would review some stuff, but I had long chunk stretches on the weekend that included a bi-weekly study session with a friend. This intensive method does not work for everyone. So whatever schedule works for you, make sure to stick to it. Finish studying. I mean, be completely finished with looking everything over. And in that last week, just take a practice exam and review one to two week areas while making sure that you rest. You cannot expect your brain to perform for six hours on test day without rest the day before.
1: We completely agree with this. We talked about this on Instagram a few weeks back as well. Both Sheila and I prioritized movement and sleep during the course of our exam prep, not because we're Peloton junkies or anything like that, but we are. And also remember, too, like, I didn't have kids and don't have kids right now where I needed to account for anybody really other than myself and my husband to take care for, whereas Sheila had two very young kids and a husband to take care of at home. Um, So kind of going off tangent there, but just reiterating what Marissa said, just make sure it works for you. We're always scheduling around sleep and workouts, family, and making sure we're giving our bodies what they need to perform optimally. Marissa, thank you so much for answering all these questions for us. We really appreciate you coming on. Where can people find you on social media?
2: Everyone can find myself and the other Marissa at pediatric physical therapy on Instagram.
0: That is it for this episode. If Peloton wants to approach us for a sponsorship, we are open to that. Very Um, much
1: open (laughs) to that Peloton.
0: (laughs) Join us later this week for another Case Files Friday and happy studying.
1: Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time.
0: And remember, you totally got it.